Welcome to Sword and Laser, episode 185. I'm Tom Merritt, and Veronica Belmont has let me start the show today. Thanks, Veronica. You're welcome, Tom. We have a special interview today. We're not only interviewing an author, but also the person who read his audiobook. Joining us, author of Traveling in Space, Stephen Paul Leva, and his narrator, Mr. Jeff Kanata. How are you guys doing? Very good. How are you? Doing very well. I think it's odd that the man who read the audiobook is very silent right now. <laughs> well, I, I only say the words that he writes for me, so oh. you know. So if you could, yeah, if you could just write down answers for Jeff throughout the interview, that'd be great. <laughs> so you could read them out. We need we need to make sure we rope him into this thing somehow. Yeah, we can let if you let Jeff go, he'll be fine. It's this pull string on the back of the neck. Yeah, yeah, right. You just just need to pull it way back. Uh, Well, Mr. Uh, Stephen Pauleva, I really enjoyed traveling in space. Thank Uh, you. It was it was fantastic. Tell us, tell folks out there a little bit about yourself and how you came to write this book. Well, uh, I was born in 1893. It was I lied a lot. Day over 1890. No, I um. I started out in, in, in life, uh, I suppose, wanting to be a writer and then got, uh, as I say, I got kidnapped by Hollywood in my 20s. Uh, eventually I escaped or possibly was expelled, but I worked in uh, uh, producing an animation and, and writing some screenplays. And some of your audience may remember Space Jam. Uh, <gasps> the, see, like, there you go. <laughs> Veronica's into it. <laughs> with, uh, with the witty Bugs Bunny and the sweaty Michael Jordan. I produced the animation for that. Uh, but after that, it was like, let's go home and do our novels. Uh, so I, I started writing. The first thing I, I wrote was a, a Hollywood-based satiric thriller called Blood is Pretty, or the first one I had published. Uh, and I did that because I remember uh, something that Ray Bradbury once told me. that He said, writing is great because you get to kill off your old enemies. And um, after 20 years in Hollywood, I had a few enemies I wanted to kill off, so it was a great to do that in that book. But eventually I came to Traveling in Space, and the impetus was I was a little – I looked at movies about aliens and, and Earth people, First Contact, or, or, uh, or other books, and aliens were almost these big, horrible insect monster creatures or lizard creatures that uh, come down to Earth to either uh, eat us, steal our women. It's always our women. They never want to steal us guys for some reason. Steal our precious water or something. Or they want to come down and uplift us into some form of angelhood or what have you. And it just occurred to me that, you know, if any aliens happen to drop by Earth, which would be a total accident, because who the hell would look for this place? Uh, it would be an accident. And, uh, and they would just stumble upon us. And they would probably be better than us, but not perfect. More mature, as I like to put it, but with their own quirks, their own problems. Uh, and their own individual personalities. They all wouldn't dress alike. <laughs> each alien wouldn't look like each other and talk the same way. That was the impetus. And once I got going on that, I realized that I had the perfect uh, landscape to look at our own society, look at the Homo sapiens species, and uh, project where I think uh, and I hope our species goes in the future. And I have fun. It, I found it really enthralling uh, that you chose it like you say instead of going the bug-eyed monster route or uh, what some people have done is say well they would be so different from us we wouldn't be able to relate to them or understand them in any way 
it, it seems like the mistake, if you call it a mistake, that some have tried or played around with is let's make them close enough to human that we can understand them in the book and and relate to them, but but try, still try to make them strange. And you didn't do that. You made them closer to us, which right. I felt was even more alien. Yes, uh, because because the alienness, which which the differences stand out more in a way, because they're not big, they're a little bit smaller. And plus, my aliens operate as a metaphor for where we potentially can go in a different way. And I give them, as as Jeff knows, I'm certainly not a hard science fiction writer. I'm a satirist. I'm a comic writer, and so I wanted to play around with that, and yet still have uh, there's dramatic incidences in the book, and there's there's genocide and death and a little bit of sex too. Now Ooh. I liked the sex. That was good. Violent. <laughs> and violence. There's violence. And so so Jeff, how did how did you become involved? Well, um I had the great opportunity to work with Steven uh as an actor in a production or a reading that he put together for Ray Bradbury Week. Steven actually befriended Ray Bradbury and put together a tribute to Ray Bradbury here in Los Angeles. Uh, I don't know, a few years ago? 2010, during his 90th birthday. Yeah, and uh, for that occasion, he put together a reading of a play. I was not really aware at how many plays Ray Bradbury wrote. Uh, he was he was quite a playwright. He, lo- he, he absolutely loved the theater. He would turn a lot of his short stories into, into one-act plays, and this was one called The Better Part of Wisdom. Yeah, and it's not science fiction. It's, no. uh, it, it was really touching family story, and he cast uh, James Cromwell and uh, Seamus Dever from Castle, right. and me, somehow. Uh, so the three of you us... You were recommended. I was... Somehow I paid somebody enough money to recommend me. Anyway, so the three of us did that, <laughs> and uh, and uh, during that, I had to do a, uh, a British accent for that, and... Uh, well, that was that was my concern, because I did not know... I, I knew James Cromwell. I was a fan of Castle, and the same casting agent recommended Jeff. Um, and so I called Jeff up, and when you do a reading, it was a stage reading at the Writers Guild, and you do a reading, you get a table read and a rehearsal the day of the reading, and then the reading. You don't get a lot of time. And my concern was, because this takes place in, in England, and the the Seamus character and the James Cromwell character are Irish, but the Jeff character would be English. And I didn't want a phony kind of crass uh, British accent. And this would have been a very intelligent uh, gay man in the late 50s, early 60s. So I over the phone, I said, can you do an English accent? And I don't mean a cliche, but, you know, something natural. And I said, sure, governor. Yeah. <laughs> and he, he assured me, and I took it on. So I'm still a little nervous, and we do our first table read, or I don't even know if we did a table read. We may have just got on our feet and, and yeah. rehearsed. And he comes out with his first line, and not only is the accent perfect uh, and subtle, but he's in character. He's, uh, to, to use a horrible term from acting, he's in the moment, <laughs> and he's right there. And I knew at the moment, I said, this is a very subtle and very talented actor. And uh, so when my publisher said, let's make an audiobook, he was the first guy I thought of. I thought of no one else. My publisher wanted me. And I told him, I said, no, Dave, I'm a ham, but I'm not an actor. Let's so get a pro for the job. That's so interesting because I feel like a lot of authors don't have an opportunity to really vet the narrators that do their audio book. Did you have a special arrangement for that? or or? I just We produced it completely ourselves. Okay. Uh, I produced it. I directed it. My best friend, who's been a film editor for years, and he was worked on uh, Back to the Future and The Rocketeer and many films like that, and then got into uh, editing and animation. 
he set up a, a recording studio in his editorial bay at his home, uh, and we did it there. Uh, and it was amazing to be able to have the author two feet away from me describing his intention for the scene and, and really directing me. And I think the reason that I was so excited about this project is that I knew Stephen was an excellent director and loved drama and really wanted to approach this project not as a reading of his book but as a performance of his book. And it's written in such a way, uh, there are scenes that are really vaudevillian and comic, and then there are scenes that are much heavier and intense, and he really wanted to bring out, I think you take a lot of pride in your dialogue, and you wanted exactly. to bring out the the interplay between those characters and really make it feel like uh, almost a radio play rather than just a, and, a reading. And that interplay, because being vaudeville, it's all about timing. And of course, we can figure with the timing and editing a little bit, but Jeff is doing that. He did 35 different voices for this performance. Yeah, little did I know when I signed up that my first audiobook would be uh, this intense. It, it was really, really intense. And, and he says 35 voices, and many of the scenes are 10, 12 people in a room talking to each other, and uh, yeah, it's he, a little bit brain-breaking. He's bouncing but. the back and forth. I just had someone I was talking to who's, who's listening to the audiobook and didn't really listen to the credits or anything. And when I told him it was one actor doing all the voices, his draw, his his draw dropped, <laughs> his jaw dropped. He really thought it was a ensemble cast of actors doing these different voices. Because I know a lot of people know Jeff from the internet and from his hosting duties. You know, they know he's charming, they know he's witty, they know he's got a sense of humor. They he's know that rad. if it wasn't for me, he would be the best looking guy in the world. <laughs> And all that, but what they don't know is he's one hell of a fine actor, such a good actor. Uh -oh. And I think we gave him a good uh, playground uh, by having him do traveling in space. Yeah. yeah. No, when I was... Go ahead, Tom. No, no, go ahead, Jeff. I was just going to say uh, that's the other great thing that is that, you know, he called me and said, Do you want to do this? And I had wanted to do an audiobook for a long time, and I was excited to do it, but then I read the book. And the book is really good. And I'm not just saying that. You know, I, I genuinely enjoyed it. It's a unique, interesting take. He, he manages to play with tone. As I said, one time, you know, in one moment, it's really funny. And another moment, it's very serious and, and really poignant and touching. Um, so I, I was happy to be a part of it. I, I texted Jeff when I was listening to the audiobook. I never could have predicted how much I would enjoy you pretending to be a 95-year-old lesbian Methodist saying the sweet side of her schnoz, but I do very much. Really good job on the book. And that's uh, my favorite character he does, Margaret Cleveland. And I, I forgot I was listening to an audiobook narrator, Forget, much less listening to Jeff being that, that narrator. And that uh, was Steve, the key, as Jeff said, not to have a narrator, have a performer. Stephen, obviously, Jeff said you gave him direction. How how much did your uh, how much direction did you give him on those character depictions, or did you just kind of let him run with it? Well, first, let him run with it. I mean, we discussed it a little bit beforehand, um, but he he understood the characters pretty quickly and pretty deeply. I think deeply is is a good word here. Um, the direction would often come on the intent of a particular line or a scene, and we would discuss that. And you only had to tell Jeff once. Um, and uh, sometimes, and my writing on occasion can be Baroque, possibly, or, or innate, and uh, so we have to get over that or under, understand where the, the joke was inside something, possibly, and what to emphasize. But it was mainly my sitting on a couch watching him and <laughs> getting into it so much, sometimes I would bloody forget to, uh, to direct. 
<laughs> now, Same see, with the engineer, Peter, the engineer, the audio engineer, my partner on this, would sometimes be listening so intently, he he would say, wait a minute, we got to go back because I forgot to do that. <laughs> so we were enjoying it. Now, Stephen, when you're when you're writing in these uh, these these alien characters, how do you get yourself in that mindset? What what is your process like for writing for writing aliens? Uh, just like any writer, you, you project uh, from within yourself, obviously. See, I hate people who say I don't really write my books; they write themselves, or I don't know where that's bullshit. It all comes from your brain, you know. Let's be honest. Um, and it, it's being improvisational when you write. A lot of my writing I will actually do by dictating into a micro cassette. Often when I'm taking a, a morning walk in the neighborhood. So I'm the crazy guy with the micro cassette. Because uh, <laughs> I'm very, very, muttering and very dramatic. But uh, I love improv. And, and if you do that, I think your dialogue can sometimes be better and sharper and quicker and funnier because it's coming, it's popping out of your head. Um, where if you're trying to be too careful, uh, you know, you might not get that freshness. Now, when you start to type up your, your original audio draft, you're rewriting immediately and you're shaping and everything like that. But to get that essence first, um, and let it bubble up. I think Ray Bradbury worked that way. And in fact, in his late years when he couldn't type because he'd had two strokes, uh, he'd wake up in the morning, he'd call his daughter in Arizona, Z, dictate, she would type up, fax it back to him, he'd make notes. So he, before that, he would always type, but I think he typed very fast. And with, all art is improvisational when it's first being created, and so tap into that. How much research did you do? Because uh, I know you said you're, you're writing a satire, you're not trying to write hard sci-fi, but did you, did you want to get certain things right, even if it's sociopolitically? Yeah, well, if, if I was... Coming across something, I don't know what to give an example, but I would certainly then research it or Google it or look at it. Uh, it's like the genocide scene seems to take place maybe in East Europe, but I didn't want to peg it, you know, so I made it made it a little uh, uh, um, vague. not vague, which was easy because they're alien visitors and they can be vague if they don't have all the details. Yeah, they, um, they don't know what looked the up Balkans the numbers are. of, of uh, people in religions and when I had to put facts like that. As to the technology, uh, and as, as you know, uh, the alien technology is all bubble technology. And I did that because I'm not a hard science writer. And I thought bubbles are so beautiful. And just today in the LA Times, there's an article about all the physicists and scientists hired by DreamWorks Animation to create algorithms and things like that for their animated films. And they're doing a film now about little aliens that travel in bubbles. Uh-oh. Yeah, no. Time, time to call your lawyer. Yeah. yeah cannot I, copyright an idea, and I'm more than happy to get some of that fat Disney money. I don't want to get too spoilery, but in James S. A. Corey's third book of the Expanse series, Cibola Burns, there are some like hard science, not not super hard science, but they they use a a, a bubble type transport mechanism as well. So I think I think you've started a trend here. It's a zeitgeist. Well, he may have been before me. I don't know. But I don't know who it is. Oh, the book just came out, so you beat him to it. Oh, okay, okay. So he, I will sue. No. <laughs> I don't sue anybody. Um, but uh, yeah, but it it seemed logical with micro technology and everything that you could create a bubble thing that could be so malleable. And they have uh, communication bubbles here to there, abode bubbles. They have med bubbles that can heal your wounds. You know, 
And it just was a fantasy land of being able to have that. And plot-wise, it just worked beautifully well. Now, jumping back to Jeff a little bit, uh, how did you keep all the characters straight? That's also another question that I've had for for narrators over the years, at least in my mind when I'm listening to large ensemble audiobook casts um, that are actually just one person. How, how do you switch, make that mental shift back and forth from one character to another? It's a challenge. It's a challenge. I, mean, I think that the key is to have a real clear picture in your head as to what the character is and then how they sound sort of comes directly from that. But we ended up having to create a bank of sounds because there's just so many. And oftentimes we get to a point where, you know, four or five chapters later, a character comes back and I, I was like, I don't have any recollection of what this person sounded like. Uh, and so they, yeah. Peter Lonsdale would create sound samples of each character. Yeah. So he could, you know, from earlier and just play that and then Jeff would get it immediately. Um, and then it's being in in the skin, and we would talk about the characters, like Margaret yeah. Cleveland, uh, how I saw her as sort of like who just passed away, Eileen uh, Stritch, yeah. uh, Eileen Stritch, yeah. and being sort of that kind of a character, or the I went uh, more Catherine Hepburn with her, to the, be honest. The man who becomes the president. Yeah, you did. Uh, <laughs> the man who becomes president, in my mind, was Tip O'Neill, who unfortunately was a politician. <laughs> I don't think Jeff knew because. I'm just a tad older than Jeff. I, I don't know if you'd notice that. No. No, thank you very much. <laughs> that says more about me than anything else. <laughs> Good morning, you, yeah, right. yeah. I just got him a social security card. <laughs> oh, finally. Uh, so speaking of all those characters, uh, I definitely enjoyed most all of them, except the ones I was not meant to enjoy. Uh, will we be traveling with she who is our leader again at some point? No, I'm afraid not. It it is a it is a one off, uh, as they say. Is that a British term? Sounds vaguely sexual. Too. <laughs> um, no, I, I you know I'm I'm a stupid uh, writer author because they keep telling you to write a series of books so you can have a following, but except for my two novels with this uh, thriller character named The Fixer, I don't really do that. I just want to tell a lot of different stories. And um, my next novel is a, is a comic novel. It's not genre at all. It's a contemporary, although I call it a contemporary modern adult fairy tale, although I'm, well, anything contemporary would be modern, I suppose. Um, and it has a lot of sex in it, too. <laughs> I feel like every time you say that, you're like, Veronica would like this book. <laughs> I just want to let you know, Veronica, there's a lot of I sex in this book. Possibly only say it when you're on the screen. No. <laughs> He's trying to pitch it for vaginal fantasy. That's, I, I get it. I get it. Get the cards on the table, right? <laughs> Never black horn rim glasses. You know. <laughs> That's true. Hello. Yes. Hello. Um, so I guess I have a question for both of you, too. Um, and this is something that Tom and I have discussed on the show quite a bit in the past and that our, our listeners and viewers are very divided on, I think. Um, but do you consider audiobooks reading? Um, yeah, in a way, especially if you read along with it. It was interesting because I was telling Jeff the other day, and I forget what it is now, but I was reading something about, oh, Neil Gaiman. Is it Gaiman or Gaiman? Gaiman, yeah. Gaiman, yeah. Um, he just read uh, James Thurber's The Thirteen Clocks, I guess, for an audiobook. And he's a wonderful reader. I've seen him live and read his own stuff. And he, he's an author that can actually read his own work. But it was stated there that uh, um, to hear a book, it was encouraging people to read to their children and read out loud. But to hear a book, you sometimes get something in the text you don't get from reading it uh, uh, just with your eyeballs. 
And I think that's all the same thing. Writing started as an oral tradition. You know, Homer, who in my mind looks like Homer Simpson, Homer, the author of the Iliad and the Odyssey, if there actually was a Homer, but he didn't write anything down because there wasn't writing at the time. It was all an oral tradition. I to always try to write for the human voice. I adore the human voice, and I adore what a great actor can do with it. So it is a, sure, it's a form of reading because it winds up in your head, doesn't it? Um, and uh, if it winds up in your head and it's been written by somebody, it's a form of reading. And in fact, maybe a better because there's so many readers out there that are reading sort of like the Evelyn Wood style where you don't sound it out in your head. And they drive me nuts. Because... Yeah, it's something that, that Stephen and I have talked about just socially uh, a lot because he, it's a real bugaboo for him. Um, because I think both of us share a, a love of language. And I think yeah. the reason that I wanted to be an actor as a you know young person was I l fell in love with language and the sound of words and the way words yeah. play with each other and butt up against one another. And, and his writing is so much a celebration of words and, and sentences and, and being creative that way that I think you know one of the yeah. things that Stephen has always railed against is people who... You know, you have friends that skip over sections I, or do things. I, I had a cousin once that told me, oh, I only read the dialogue. Yeah. <laughs> it I, just I wants to get the, the gist of things yeah. rather, really? than, rather than, you know, yeah. just kind of savor the, my, the wow. artfulness. My I've mother told that. me once, my mother, who I think self-taught herself speed reading, she said, I, I don't really hear the words. I see pictures. And, I you know, it's like, well, go to a friggin' movie. <laughs> <laughs> Which, you know, I, I, I anybody that reads... I'm gonna be happy that they're reading at yes, all, yes. <laughs> but but uh, I do think that you know hearing the words spoken is a celebration of the words, and for me that's reading. You know I think reading is is hearing concepts expressed, but how they're expressed and the exactly. specific manner in which interpretation. Yeah, yeah, that's the art. So um, and a lot of us who are English only speakers and I count myself among that we don't always realize what a beautiful language English is. And uh, many uh, uh, foreign speakers who learn English will tell you that and how more versatile it is than most any other language on earth. Uh, partly because a lot of foreign influences into our language. We have this vast vast playground called English and uh, I want people to hear the words and I want them to be moved by the words. And in performance, it's it's even better. Well, traveling in space uh, is available as a Kindle, uh, as a paperback, as an audiobook, obviously. And I noticed that you uh, you signed it up, or it was signed up, maybe. I uh, hope this isn't news to you for the for the Kindle subscription service. So if you pay for I that, I think that service. became automatic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We're part of that. The new, uh, the new one. Yeah, the one that's $10 a month. Uh, right, because we're exclusive to Amazon. This particular uh, publisher, Blue Roof, uh, is staying completely exclusive to Amazon. So unfortunately, you can't get it on Kobo or Sony Reader, but anybody can download uh, a Kindle app. Yeah, and, and, and read it on, on whatever you want. So if, if you were thinking about trying out the, uh, the, the Kindle subscription service, this might be a way to check out Traveling in Space. Our, our last question... Do you? Th I want both of you to answer this. Uh, just, just kind of generally backing up from the book. Do you think there's intelligent life out there? You know what? <laughs> this is. I talk about this a lot to people. Yeah, I bet. Um, because here's a gut reaction most people get. Well, of course, it's got to be. It's arrogant of us to think we're the only life in the universe. 
but actually we have no evidence as of yet. But the real point is, whether there is or isn't, it's so probably few and far between, or we will may never face it face-to-face, one-on-one, that it's almost as if we are alone in the universe. And I also think we ought to consider ourselves the only life in the universe so that we understand how precious we are. Because I don't think we always understand how precious we are. If, and I point this out in the book, if we're the only life in the universe and suddenly we wipe ourselves out, one, there's not a tear anywhere in the universe that's going to be shed for us, which is sad, but also energizing. We're precious. We need to take care of ourselves. We need to take care of this planet and we need to seed and go beyond. Why? Why not? Because we're life. Simple as that. Why, why, we haven't been around that long. Let's go forward. That's why he's the writer and I'm the reader, because I can't say it any better than that. <laughs> well, and it does, it fits in exactly with uh, the viewpoint of the aliens. Uh, until they meet us in your book, they right. assume we, we must be the only ones out here. They absolutely assume that. And I think it is an assumption you can make. And that was another counter. I always like to counter assumptions and uh, come up with my own assumptions. That's one of the things that I, I love uh, as a theme in the book is is that from the aliens' perspective, they are they are sort of the next evolutionary step from us. They are us, you know, a thousand years from now. And from their perspective, the only great evil in the world is death, and the one thing to 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 protect is life. And I and I love that perspective. I've never seen that before in science fiction expressed in quite that way. Uh, and it's one of the things I like most about the book. Thank you. Yeah, I, I, just on a side note, I really enjoyed uh, using death and variations of death as the curse words. Uh, <laughs> yes, that that's their, their profanity is death and, and decay, where ours is, of course, sex and excrement. <laughs> <laughs> what that's does that say about us? They're more mature than we are. <laughs> yeah, what does that say about us as a species, unfortunately? Exactly. Um, so where but, if people want to follow... Go ahead. Us as a species today, where are we going to be tomorrow? That's the key. So if we start using the correct curse words, will that help us get a leg up yeah. on our evolution? It's yes. all curse yes. word based. That's the evolutionary ladder is curse oh, word kill based. that. I'm not, wait. <laughs> <laughs> You're so advanced, Tom. I love it. So if, if people want to follow your work online, both of you, uh, where can they go? Well, I'm on Facebook. Just me, Stephen Paul Leva. Uh, Traveling in Space also has a Facebook page. I'm trying to understand the Twitter universe, so I'm at Stephen Paul Leva. Um, and uh, I'm on Goodreads, of course, um, and and uh, I'm down on the corner like every Wednesday at uh, 7 a.m. So you <laughs> what? Whoops! I'm sorry. I should have turned off my phone. So we can Ooh, we can creepy stalk you on the on the shoulder on the uh, side of the road sometime. Right. You want to find me on the side of the road? Book. We'll we'll write for food. Here. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and I'm uh, Jeff Kanata at Jeff Kanata on Twitter is the easiest way. Uh, that's with two ends and one t. Two ends and one t. Fantastic. Well, thank you guys so much for joining us, and uh, we really appreciate it. I can't wait to read the book, and I know Tom really enjoyed it, and I'm sure many of our listeners and readers out there will as well. So thanks for taking the time to come on the show. Thank you for having us. Uh, It was wonderful of you, and I love anybody with dark uh, uh, black glasses. All right. (laughs) I didn't know I was going to be catering to the interviewees today. Fantastic. (laughs) Thanks, guys. Thanks. Thanks. Thanks, Thanks,
podcast is part of the Frog Pants Studios Network. For more information about this and other shows, visit frogpants.com. Audio program so good, it's like you're there.